Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Welcome to a brand new series. Uh, open your Bibles with me, if you will, to Amos chapter 5. That's where we're going to begin. If you have your phone with you or you're on a social media platform, I would encourage you to share this message and the next four messages in this series also. Uh, I think it's going to shed a lot of light. It's going to bring a lot of clarity, particularly to folks who may not be in this room or even watching online right now and haven't done so in a long, long time because there's been some deep wounding and some deep hurt that has been uh, caused to them at the hands of a religious entity, a church, uh, some other kind of organization. We're talking about bad religion today. Faith can be a powerful thing, either for good or for ill. It can make you a better follower of Christ. In fact, it, without faith, it is impossible, the scriptures tell us, to please God. It can conform you to the image of Christ. It can make you a powerful advocate for the vulnerable. It can make you an awesome evangelist. It can make you a spirit-filled believer who makes a mark, not only on your own life and that of your family, but that of the world. Here's the other thing that faith can do if it becomes corrupt or toxic. It has been invoked and used and weaponized for all manner of atrocity, hasn't it? Throughout history, sometimes in ways that that, that, that that toxicity begins to affect negatively family units, sometimes entire churches and faith communities, sometimes entire societies. Throughout history, we've seen uh, religious ideals invoked to rationalize horrible beliefs and behaviors. That has a really long history. And, and because of the fallen nature of humanity, it's not something that dies easily, and it causes a lot of collateral Damage. In fact, probably <clears throat> one, of the, one of the less uh, atrocious results of this has been what we call the rise of the nuns. If you look at demographers, they will tell you that uh, in terms of, of looking at the demography of the United States year to year, the rise, the very sharp rise in the number of folks of all ages who no longer have a religious affiliation of any kind. They're not Christian. They don't identify as Muslim, as Jewish, as Hindu, as Buddhist. They simply say, I have no religious affiliation. And that number has grown just in the last half of a decade from 16% to 22% of the American population. That's almost one in four people. And, and when you dig underneath the surface and you start to ask questions like, why did you leave your faith? What caused you to abandon your faith? Understandably, you'll find a myriad of different reasons why people would do that. But at the heart of it, an overwhelming number of folks will say it was the influence of bad religion. And so over the next several weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to trace out the characteristics of bad religion including the Christian version of it. We're going to learn the difference between bad religion, but most importantly, what I want us to do as we begin to enter the summer months together, I want us to learn how to overcome the worst of religion with the best of faith. That's going to take us to a number of subjects, but we start today with the subject of justice. Bad religion is a faith that capitalizes on injustice. So what do we mean by justice? The Hebrew scriptures use this term. It's the term mishpat. And it literally means to give another person what they are due. 
That, that's what it means. So if I owe you money, it's unjust for me to hold that back from you. I should pay you back, okay? And so if you've got a landlord and you've been taking advantage of some of this COVID stuff, not because you've fallen on hard times, but because you would rather go to the beach than pay your landlord, need to pay your freaking landlord because you're being unjust, right? Withholding anything from someone that is due to them. So, so negatively, that means if someone's bringing harm either to themselves or to other people, that, then there should be a proper authority that steps in to stop that or to, in some cases, punish evildoers. So, for example, we, our culture's had a lot of discussion lately around the, the subject of police brutality. It's a completely legitimate discussion. But if it goes to the extreme to where you start to see anybody wearing a badge as the problem, now you're saying, well, let's just eliminate all of that. And what you don't understand is human beings are fallen in sin. And if sin doesn't have a checkpoint of authority somewhere along the lines of a culture, what you're going to end up with is more injustice, not less injustice. So justice is there negatively to punish those who do evil. Romans 13 reminds us that one of the chief purposes of the government is to punish people who do evil. But this term also has a more positive meaning that focuses on the image of God in all of humanity. <clears throat> and in most cases where it appears in the Old Testament, that's the intended meaning. And that's true here in Amos as well. Justice isn't merely about a courtroom or punishing evildoers. The heart of Mishpat is providing what is due to vulnerable people. Now, now what's happened in our culture is this word's been co-opted by various interest groups. And so for some of you, you're like, yes, I'm going to get to hear about justice today. And for others of you, you're like, oh, no, not another somebody talking about justice. Let me tell you why that is. If you lean more progressive, this, this word has been sort of co-opted so that everything, I mean everything, now becomes an issue of justice and oppression. But here's the, here's the problem with the progressive view of that. There's no transcendent reference point to judge between just and unjust. It's all left up to individual identity, individual feelings, and, and it's indexed to the perceptions of various groups of individuals. And so in the progressive mind, this definition of justice, it's fluid. It's always in flux, which is why sometimes you feel like if you're around people who really are leaning hard left, you got to walk around on eggshells. Because using the wrong pronouns these days is tantamount to chattel slavery, right? That's because the, the, there's no fixed point. There's no ultimate standard for anything. And, and because of that, if you lean more conservative, you hear this word justice now and you're triggered by it. And, and some people in your camp are going to tell you, well, every time you hear the word justice, that's just code for something really bad. And so you get this pejorative, oh, that's just social justice, warrioring, and, and, and basically the conservative approach is let's just shut the conversation down altogether. Don't talk about this at all. And in the middle of all the cultural confusion around this subject, those of us who follow Jesus need to realize how central this subject is to our own faith. We need to realize how important it is to apply God's understanding of mishpat, to this practice. Otherwise, we're going to end up in the same condition as the Israelites did in the 8th century BC. This is the audience that the prophet Amos is writing to, Israelites. <clears throat> so we're talking about God's own chosen people here. And, and he says to them, your religion is bad. 
And the chief evidence of this is the condition of the most vulnerable people in your city. Your religion is bad because justice does not exist among you. You know, sometimes it's good for us to remind ourselves as a church why we do some of the things that we do. It's necessary to explain to our growing faith family as more people kind of come into the family. I've got eight of you I'm going to be talking to this afternoon about this prospect. We do this kind of thing every month. And you may want to know, why do we do these things? We're about to reinitiate. I'm going to be in a meeting this coming Friday with our partners at One America West Virginia. It's time to, to re-engage that conversation around the broader way that we fight opioid addiction in this environment. Celebrate Recovery also contributes to that, as well as multiple other expressions of addiction. It's why we give money and partner with, with organizations like Jefferson County Community Ministries. It's why we send volunteers to the Martinsburg Rescue Mission. It's why we're triggering and, and, and beginning to pull the trigger on brand new work in the city of Baltimore, not just to deal with the systemic issues behind poverty in that city, but to learn from people that have been doing it for years, how we might be able to make a dent in some of those problems, even even in our own environment. It's why we gave away over $150,000 to these sorts of things last year. I got to tell you, we could have spent that on ourselves. Steve will tell you, our facilities manager, we could have used some upgrades around here. We could have hired a couple more staff members. Why did we give that money away and why was it targeted toward those kinds of things? It's because we have a very distinct reason for doing what we do as the body of Christ. Those reasons are tied inextricably to the biblical understanding of justice. And so what I want you to see in Amos's very strong, unmitigated, uncensored words, you already heard Jimmy describe this. You're probably already thinking, wow, that's harsh. Yeah, Amos pulled no punches. But what we find here are five imperatives that are going to help us escape bad religions approach to justice. And the first is this, we just simply have to understand what justice is. What is God talking about here? What is it that's being required of us? Look at verse 10. <clears throat> they hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine, for I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. You see that word gate occurs twice, once on the front end, once on the back end of this. That, that was the shady sort of concourse where, where people would gather in public and, and they would observe the comings and goings of people. Think of your local barbershop. Think of your local beauty shop. Think of the local bar. Think of wherever it is that you go to gather with people who kind of think like you, you kind of have a rapport with, and you just kind of want to hang out, and you want to observe the world as you perceive it and what's going on in the world. And have you ever noticed how all of the world's problems are so incredibly simple and have such simple solutions in places like that? I mean, we can do that. I've said that multiple times. My wife comes in, and I'm having a meeting with another guy. What are y'all doing? We were just about to solve the last problem on earth until you walked in, right? That, that's the kind of environment that he's talking about. And in that place were the places where the, the court of public opinion 
would, would rule the popular sentiment of the day. And in that place, they don't want nobody messing with public opinion. You also notice that every time a group like that gathers, there's always a black sheep. Always. You get a bunch of Ford guys together, somebody inevitably is going to come rolling in in a Chevy. It's just going to happen. You go to Starbucks with a half a dozen or so dudes, all of you got PCs, here comes Mac guy with his Kool-Aid, right? You're sitting around a barbershop talking conservative politics. Here comes that liberal. Going to be a fly in your ointment. And there's always somebody getting underneath their skin. That's the environment Amos is describing. And he says to Israel, this is how you view people who sometimes counter public opinion at the gate. You don't like them. But in the case that I'm describing, they're actually telling you the truth. And here's the truth. And then here's this laundry list that follows of action words that correlate to people with unjust hearts. This applies to individuals, applies to systems, applies to societies. You trample the poor. And then he doesn't just leave that open, right? It's not left up to the perception of the poor. It's not left up to somebody's feelings. How does this get done? There are precise definitions, right? Notice these. Number one, you exact taxes of grain. That's another way of saying your revenue structure at your county level or your state or whatever, it's set up so that the poor are always going to remain poor because you're taking more away from them than they can afford for you to take without them slipping deeper and deeper into poverty. You also, he says, additionally, you afflict the righteous. That can also be translated oppress. You oppress them. I know we live in a day where everything is oppression. But brothers and sisters, just because everything is not oppression doesn't mean that nothing is oppression. And it means to cause distress in the life of someone who's done nothing to deserve it. Which means if you have a system that doesn't punish evildoers, it's an unjust system. Conversely, if you have a system that inherently makes life difficult for people that have done nothing wrong, that too is unjust. Amos goes on. He says, you take a bribe. That's indicting. Basically, rather than calling out the injustice, you're actively and personally benefiting from it. You turn aside the needy. You deny them what they need, which is another way of saying you deny them what they as image bearers of God are due. And our own history bears witness to multiple examples of these actions. Back in the 1920s and 1930s, Poor people in this country, you may or may not remember some of this. Growing up in the South, I'm well aware of, of some of my own history. They were beginning to make progress. The working poor were beginning to organize and, and across all ethnic groups. They were working to, to and, but what was beginning to happen is the established order, the status quo, as it were, began to feel threatened by that, especially in my native South. And they said, we need to figure out a way to keep these people from rising up to a point to where they're going to begin to threaten the kind of existence that we want to perpetuate for ourselves. And that is where Jim Crow laws came from. That's where they came from. Let's separate ethnicities, black and white particularly. Let's keep them from working together. And by the way, here's how we'll do it. We'll codify the law in such a way that it engenders this kind of behavior. Each of these will learn to turn on each other and distrust the other. If you want an explanation for what happened last summer, there's the historical origins of it right there. It's a lack of trust engendered by a system that doesn't even exist anymore, that was put in place a hundred years ago, but whose fruit we are still seeing today. 
What's the, what's the result of this? He says, when you have injustice and you benefit from it and you take bribes on account of it and you allow it to perpetuate in the long run, you're going to get more anarchy and more lawlessness. And, and you're going to see this in other areas as well. The false hope, for example, that the working poor are given every time they see a commercial for the lottery. Yeah, I went there. Yes, I know where I live. Yes, I know where our teachers' salaries come from. Yes, I am well aware of where our revenue streams come from here in the county. That doesn't change the word of God. It does not. And when you take advantage of people, payday lenders who entrap people, who can't get ahead by taking advantage of them, private student loans that have a higher interest rate than some credit cards, Trapping students in a, in, in a way that is predatory. And Amos says here to God's people, when you see these things, there is no option for a person of faith to shrug their shoulders and go, that's not really my problem. A faith that commends love of neighbor as second only to love of God does not react that way. It doesn't react in ambivalence. And Amos isn't the only one, by the way. Do you know there are 117 individual verses in scripture that give us clear instructional justice for the poor. This is not something we can ignore. We have to understand what it is that God is calling us to in the same way that the, the people in Amos's day needed to understand what he was calling them to. And we need to do that so that we can repent of injustice and call others toward repentance of injustice. Look at verse 14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. Most will be with you, as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. It's a pretty base definition here of what repentance looks like. It's a military term. It just means to about face. I've been walking this way. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to start walking the other way because God has commanded me to do it. And applied to the issue of justice, here's what you do. He says, number one, learn to hate evil and love good. We are commanded to hate injustice because God, in whose image the vulnerable are created, hates injustice. God hates hunger. God hates poverty. God hates systems that perpetuate such things. Love good. Embrace things that will lead to justice. Now, in a fallen world, we're not always going to see how to do this clearly. Sometimes we're going to disagree with each other. That's fine. Not, neither the Lord's word nor this preacher is calling you to any particular sort of political position unless your political position is grounded in ambivalence. Okay? So the issue, you may, you may disagree on how to work all this out. The body of Christ needs to learn how to disagree agreeably. Amen? We might set a great example for this culture that, that surrounds us. If we can do this, sometimes we're going to disagree. But our hearts ought to be one on this. So my brother Mike Crawford and I have very, very sharp disagreement, for example, on the minimum wage. One of us thinks it ought to be at $15 an hour. The other thinks that's going to do way more harm than good. Right? But, but the one that thinks it's going to do more harm than good doesn't assume that this guy just doesn't understand economics or he's stupid. or whatever. And the guy that wants $15 hour minimum wage doesn't assume that this guy hates poor people because we've been around each other enough to know and to trust that both of us have a heart for the vulnerable. Right? That's how it's supposed to work. You have to have a heart 
got to see that. How do you do this clearly? Secondly, establish justice in the gate. Remember the gate above the barbershop. When you go to the bar, when you go to Starbucks, when you go wherever you go, and that, and that, that court of public opinion begins to come out, sometimes the call is to change the conversation. That's what we've done or tried to do with regard to opioid addiction. You go back to the 1960s, 1970s, there's a, there's a whole narrative about the addict that's been perpetuated in this country that's just false. And in a large extent, I would imagine it was well-meaning when it started. We don't want our children to be addicted. And so what we need to do, because we didn't understand then what we understand now, some of the things that common grace has revealed to us, we need to come up with this narrative that an addict is just a junkie. They're just a criminal. They're just the worst of the worst. There's absolutely no way we need to see them in any other way than that so that our children will be scared to death to ever become that, and they'll just say no. How'd that work for us? Now that we understand, particularly around opiates, and the effect that this has on the prefrontal cortex of the brain, what have we done? We've changed the story. We didn't take away from it. We don't take the moral element out of it. It's still a bad decision. Still a bad decision. We still believe there are consequences to bad decisions. We don't take the moral element out of it at all. But we added the full picture so that we don't just see a junkie. We see someone who's trapped. We see a larger environment, a reality that makes it far easier now to become addicted than it ever has been before. And so what Amos is saying here is to repent is to look to the vulnerable, the poor, the addict, and to do that with a new set of eyes that sees them differently, that doesn't dismiss their humanity or the, or the complexity of the issues that they contend with. Understand what justice is and what injustice is. Learn to repent of it and to call others to repent of it because in doing so, you will, thirdly, avoid the consequences of injustice. Verse 13, therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time for it is an evil time. We'll come back to verse 15 in a minute. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, alas, alas, and they shall call the farmers to mourning and wailing, and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation, and in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst. Sometimes when the Lord promises his presence, it's not a pleasant thing. I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. It's a foreboding warning, but behind it is this assumption that we see throughout the Bible, most clearly in the prophets. Look at Jeremiah 29, verse 7. He says to a group of Israelites now living in Babylon under the yoke of slavery, what does he say to them? Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for, here's the reason why, in its welfare you will find your welfare. Here's, here's the, the lesson of history. Everywhere that God's people have ever been allowed to exist, God has tied their welfare inseparably and inextricably to the people around them because he loves those people too. He loves those people. And the corollary to this is sobering. When you don't care about the people around you, when you do nothing about the suffering around you, when you are ambivalent and shrug your shoulders, you will eventually be made to suffer with them. 
that, that's the plain, clear teaching of Amos here. Now, let me put this in real practical terms. Over the past year, the world's been subjected to a number of crises, hasn't it? We've had a pandemic to deal with. We've had racial tension. We've had violence. We've had political polarization you could cut with a knife. We've had rising distrust between neighbors to the extent that even families aren't members aren't speaking to each other anymore. We can do one of two things. We can either participate in that kind of nonsense or we can rebel against it by repenting. When you join the world in that polarization, when you use the same language as your particular tribe uses, more than you use kingdom language, when you're more concerned about the wind than you are the truth, when you, when you join the world in that, you know what you're going to get? You're going to get more of it. When you polarize, you're going to get more polarization. When you distrust, you're going to get more distrust. When you come out and are ugly and nasty on social media, you know what that's going to produce? More ugly, more nasty. That's what's going to happen. When you join the world in ambivalence, you get more injustice, and then what happens? Eventually, we start to suffer. And when we wail as a result of our suffering, because of that behavior, the Lord of heaven looks at us and says, take your medicine. Take it. Here's what I think Amos is trying to warn us against. He's saying, I I want you to avoid that outcome. Don't don't allow your soul, your, your faith communities to be taken there. Well, how do you avoid it? Well, by sharing the Lord's heart for justice. Look at verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? We're going to do a series in late summer called The Return of the King. Some of y'all have been badgering me for years to talk about the second coming of Jesus. You're going to get your wish. It's coming. We're going to talk about it. I'm excited to talk about it. And so often, particularly in the Old Testament, that period of time is referred to collectively as the day of the Lord. And we see that, that, that phrase used repeatedly by Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Obadiah, Zechariah, Malachi, as well as Amos. Israel used this phrase to, re- to refer to a time when, according to their own understanding, the Lord would return and would intervene on behalf of his people. So we want justice for us. We don't care about it for anybody else, but we're going to keep talking about the day of the Lord kind of like a lot of people today. They spent a lot of time looking, scouring the internet, looking at for prophecy teachers, and they sit in classrooms with charts and easels and trying to identify the Antichrist and their blood pressure going through the roof trying to figure out who's who and how everything connects. And, and they're just waiting on that day of the Lord when according to their own understanding, they will be avenged. I'm just, I'm going to be raptured out of here. And then God's going to pour out his fiery wrath on all these people that I don't like. Well, that's what the people of Israel were doing too. That's how, it's exactly how they were appropriating their understanding of the end of days. And Amos comes along and he says, I don't think you understand quite how this is going to go down. 
You are ambivalent toward the poor. You perpetuate injustice on the vulnerable. You benefit without thought from a system that allows you to take bribes while you turn a blind eye to bona fide suffering happening right in front of you. Why on earth do you look forward to the day of the Lord? Don't you know he will avenge the evil you have done? Why are you anxious for your own judgment? In other words, these are people who wanted perceived justice for themselves, not really worried about the vulnerable. And it was for one simple reason. It's because they didn't share the Lord's heart for justice. So here's a question Amos puts in front of us now. As we get ready in a couple of months here, we're going to start talking about it, return of the king. And there's a lot of hope in the return of Jesus. I'm so excited. I've already looked at Malachi 4. I've already looked at 1 Thessalonians 4. Yes, I will get into Revelation for all you people that are wondering all about that. We're going to get into all of it. I am freaking excited about it. But as we think about what Amos is saying to us today, we got to ask this question. Do we see even our eschatology in light of God's heart for the vulnerable? Do we look forward? Do I look forward? Not just to my own redemption. But to that day that Paul tells me in Romans 8 is coming when all of this groaning, suffering creation, is, that weight is lifted from it and it's recovered. A day when there will be, can you wait for it? No more poverty. You know there's no school lunch programs in the kingdom of God? None. They're not needed there no more need for foster care. No more need for recovery programs. No more suffering. But the question is this. Does my heart long to bring a glimpse of that world to this one? Is that what God's calling me to do? That's the difference, Amos is telling us, between the worst of religion and the best of faith. Do I long to see it? That's the heart of God. And that heart leads to genuine worship. Look at verse 21. These may be the harshest words, but we're going to find some hope even in the harshness. God, through his prophet, says to Israel, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not accept. Look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your hearts, harps. I will not listen. You see what he's doing? He's methodically moving through the liturgical order and coming to each element. It would be like him coming to covenant and going, that countdown clock makes me want to vomit. That first song, I don't even know, none of you meant what you sang. I don't even want to hear it. That scripture reading, none of you are really listening to it. It's just mundane religion. None of you are applying it to your hearts. So stop reciting it. I don't want to hear another note. I don't want anything else. You come together and everything you do is fake. Like That's kind of harsh. Yeah, it is. But the reason is because all of those songs, all of those recitations, all of those expressions of worship in ancient Israel did not come from hearts that were in sync with their God. And the Lord said, you want to truly worship, here's what I want, verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I want justice. 
That's my due. Forget about your neighbor. You owe me service to the vulnerable. You owe that to the God who created you and redeemed you. We've had a lot of discussions over the last year about rights, particularly religious freedom and right, perfectly legitimate. I've done that on several other continents, may as well do it on this one right now, but we've got to be careful when we're talking about our relationship with the government, in which that's a very appropriate conversation, not to transpose that to God when we start talking about our right to worship. Be very, very careful speaking of being in the presence of a holy God using the language of rights. Worship is a privilege. And we see that reflected here because the Lord looks at what they're doing and he says, just shut up, all of you. Just shut up. I don't hear you. I don't want to hear you. You make me sick. I hear and see that weekend Vegas show that's disguised as Christian worship, and I despise it. And you want to know why? Well, just got to remember the words of Jesus. Love God. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're not giving your neighbor his due, you can't give God his. That's, that's what we're being taught here. We only give God his due in worship when we have done as he commands and have given our neighbor his due. And Amos says to Israel, before you sing another note, before you give another shekel, before you kill another sacrifice, I want justice. I want justice because people who feign worship with no concern for justice are purveyors of the same kind of bad religion that right here in Amos oppressed the poor and enabled the system that did so. They enable and pur purvey the same bad religion that in the Middle Ages used the doctrine of hell to scare the poor into giving all of their money. It's the same religion that effectively built St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome with slave labor. It's the same religion that we've seen with absolute horror and aghastness over the last five years or so has covered up all manner of sexual abuse within the church by guys in my line of work cross-denominationally. It's the same religion that so individualizes and personalizes my faith in Christ that it is devoid of concern for love of neighbor. Amos says, you have to repent of that. If that's, I mean, I don't know anybody's heart here, but Amos would say to anyone to whom that is true, you are a purveyor of something toxic. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Priest comes by, he keeps going. Levite keeps by, he keeps going. Samaritan, half-breed, that's what they were. That was a racial slur. That's what, it was, that's what it meant back in that day. Years before, when the Assyrians came in and they conquered Israel, they took wives as slaves and the babies, well, those were the Samaritans. Those were the Samaritans. So the Jews hated the Samaritans. You remember how that story started with a young man asking the Lord, what do I have to do? And Jesus repeats, as he does often in the Gospels, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember what the young man's response was? Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? There's a lot of people in North America today asking that question. Asking that question. I mean, but what about this? What about that? What about this situation, that situation? What about, what about that guy? What about that guy? What about that person? What about that ethnic group? What about that tribe? What about, what about that group? What, what about this? What about that? All that whataboutism gets answered in a parable 
to a guy who's always trying to qualify the level of his commitment by Jesus picking the worst of society as the Jews would have seen it, a Samaritan. Makes him the hero of the story, and here's the point. It's the same point Amos is trying to make. Everyone is created in God's image. Everyone is someone that Jesus died to save. Everyone is your neighbor and mine. Everyone. And the best of faith loves God by loving them, by seeking justice for them, by serving them. That's the best of faith. And and maybe, maybe there's some people listening, and the reason you don't love your neighbor is because you don't love God. How could you not love God? How could you not love this being who created you in his image and likeness and who in spite of your own rebellion and the injustice that comes out of your own hearts that ultimately shakes your fist in his face and tramples his law under your feet that he would send his son to pay the penalty for that wrong so that he might be both just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. That's the hope that you have today. Why don't you turn to him? Come to him today and exchange the worst of religion for the best of faith. Our our team's going to come up here in just a minute and sing a song called The Heart of Worship. That's exactly what the prophet is after. That's exactly what the Lord is after. Where is your heart today? Where is your heart today? Don't mistake anything I've said for some kind of works-based religion. You do not go to heaven by serving the poor or voting some way that makes it seem like you're that or virtue signaling on Twitter or none of that about this. It's simply about saying this. If you have the heart of God given to you through the regenerative work that was provided for you in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, you will love what God loves. You will hate what God hates, and you will by nature and by the grace of God be empowered to exchange the worst of religion for the best of faith. Come to Jesus. Do it today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this message that I know is is difficult to read. Lord, your servant Amos, you, you could have muzzled him in some way, but for whatever reason, your perfect Holy Spirit decided to let this farmer from Tekoa off the chain and just allow him to say these really hard, clear things. Father, I pray that it jolts us with a sense that it would make us people of justice. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.